You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about the variety of topics covered on the show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a monthly donor to support my work and allow it to continue to go on and be free for all to access for as low as 99 cents a month. Visit the Support the Show link on my site's homepage for more information. Quick disclaimer, the following stories I am going to be talking about do address some dark topics. I will try to not get specific about the certain topics that are very sensitive, like domestic violence, but words like domestic violence will be used in this episode. This is definitely a 13 and up episode. A few quick fun facts about the author before we dive into his stories. Murakami majored actually in cinema and theater, not writing, and he did not consider himself author material. But he was at a baseball game, and somehow during the game he had this epiphany moment and an idea for a story and was like, I think I can pull that off. So he started writing. He was actually selling around 100,000 copies per book of his. But then, suddenly his next book, Norwegian Wood, sold over 2 million and really skyrocketed his stardom. That story was about first love, betrayals, all sorts of stuff you would expect from a realistic fiction kind of story. But for the most part, aside from that, he's actually stuck to fantastical elements in his stories. So that was an anomaly for him which goes to show that he's really writing for not the numbers of copies he sells, but for the genuine ideas he is excited to write about. The first of two of his most prominent books we're going to talk about is 1Q84. You'll recognize that it looks a bit like George Orwell's classic book, 1984, which was intentional, and actually the letter Q and the number 9 in Japanese are homophones. So it's kind of a play on words. 1QA4, 1984, also alluding to, like in Orwell's book, This Parallel World, which is told in three books. The first two were released in 2009, then the third one came out in 2010, and then in 2011, the books became available in English, published in the US and the UK. Part of the story was also published in The New Yorker in 2011, called Town of Cats, which will make sense later. Each book takes place across several months in the year 1984. So the first book is April to June. The second book is July to September. And the third book is October to December. To be honest, the third book is, relatively speaking, I guess, a snooze fest. And the author seems to kind of get that and poke fun at that. The first two are much more action-packed, and by the third book, it kind of ran out of steam. But he continued the trilogy and actually has moments in that book where he seems to get that maybe it was not a great idea to do that. For example, there's this one scene where Tamaru says, Are you still reading that? And Aoma Me responds, Yeah, but not making much progress on it. This book is 900 pages. And that was very intentional, not just to draw out the story, because the story is quite layered, there are a lot of subplots here, but also because the author really wanted to make readers sit with these characters. 
for an extended period of time to really spend time reflecting on this book, not just because of its surface level plot, but all dimensions of this story. He really wanted them to try to figure out for themselves how much of what these characters are doing they can get behind, the morals or lack thereof, just really getting into these characters' heads and feeling like you know them at some level takes time, and so you shouldn't read this in an afternoon. There are two main characters, Aomame, whose full name is Masami Aomame, and Aomame actually means green peas, which kind of bugs her, but she's sticking with that name. She is a 30-year-old woman. She moonlights, basically, as an assassin. So she's a fitness instructor by day, which you can tell in like every single muscle in her body is toned. But by night, she has been hired to commit these assassinations of people who have committed domestic violence, but have not been prosecuted for it. So she feels like what she's doing is justified. The end justifies the means kind of in a dark way is what's happening here. And she feels like she's filling in the gap between ideals and reality of the justice system. She is known to not express herself more than she has to. She keeps her face pretty blank, doesn't like to give away how she's feeling. And that's not just because of her job and trying to go undercover and everything, but really that has more meaning to it that we'll get into later. She's also quite a promiscuous person, and she's really quite the character. She really likes history as well. Lots of traits combined. She's quite a multifaceted character. When she was growing up, she was actually part of a cult called the Society of Witnesses, and she went door-to-door -door with her parents every weekend trying to convert people to that society. The other protagonist is Tango. Tango is someone who, on a fateful day, looked into her eyes, their hands touched, and their fates became intrinsically linked from that moment onward. So they are childhood friends who have this bond for life, not just because they've known each other since they were little, but because of that moment that was this ground-shifting moment for both of them. So that pivotal moment in the story is really important to remember. Tango now is a math tutor at a prep school. He's also an unpublished author, and he's asked by his mentor slash editor if he can revise the 17-year-old's manuscript. This girl goes by the pen name Fuka Eri which is a mix of her name, Eriko Fukada, and she's written this manuscript called Air Chrysalis. Tango's editor wants him to totally revise this trashy manuscript. It's not very well written, and so Tango has to spruce it up, embellish it, make it look really good. And he doesn't do that for this girl's ego. He really does it for his own. He wants to parade this book around because he's an unsuccessful author himself, so he wants the recognition from discovering this child prodigy who wrote something that people would expect someone more than twice her age to have been the one to actually have written. And he wants to, just behind the scenes, basically ghostwrite for her. Other thing you should know about him is that he used to go door-to-door -door with his dad, not to convert people to a cult, but to collect fees, as part of his dad's job. His mom died when he was very little, and his first memory of his mom is her having an affair and getting intimate with someone who was not his dad. So that really stuck with him. Then there is the Dowager, aka Shizu Ogata. She's in her 70s. She's this wealthy woman who 
lives in the Willow House, which is a safe house for domestic violence victims and escapees. She runs the safe house and she actually hired Aumamis, so she's her boss, after they met up at a sports club. Then there is Fukada, who is called just the leader of Sakigate, the cult in this story. He founded it in 1974, and he is basically in charge of who he calls the little people. He has these supernatural abilities, telekinesis and stuff like that, and he has such massive muscles they give him chronic pain. Then there's Ushikawa, who is a private investigator. He works for this cult, but isn't actually a part of it himself. He's hired to spy on Tengo because as Tengo reads this manuscript the 17-year-old wrote, he realizes she might be writing about a real cult and this is a real thing that happened. So the private investigators are onto this and he's hired to spy on Tengo. He used to be a defense attorney actually, but he ran into trouble with the law himself and he had to leave the profession. He left being a lawyer to become a private investigator and his wife and kids left him, so he now lives alone and is described as kind of like Shrek, this ugly, repulsive character that is abandoned. But he actually, the more you get to know him, you learn about his layers, like an onion, to keep the Shrek reference going unnecessarily, because at the beginning he is super unlikable. You see more of where he's coming from as the story progresses. He's actually a character in a different book from the same author too, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. That story follows this man named Toru Okada who's searching for a missing cat, finds himself looking for his missing wife eventually too, then he falls into this parallel world as he's searching. So there are some parallels, no pun intended there. So those are the characters. We have Aomame, Tango, those are the two whose fates are connected and they take the story in those two separate directions, the assassin plot and then the ghostwriting plot. Fuka Eri, the young girl who is pretending to be a child prodigy, basically. The dowager who runs the safe house. Fukada, who leads the cult. Ushikawa, the private investigator. Minor characters worth noting. Professor Ibisuno is Fuka Eri's guardian. He's in his mid-sixties, and he actually used to be a colleague of the cult leader Fukada before he took 30 of his students and ran off to start the cult. Then there's Tamaru, who is the dowager's bodyguard, and Komatsu, Tango's editor, and the owner of a publishing company. He's a very interesting character for totally ignoring social norms. He'll call Tango in the middle of the night and do other things and say other things that are not to be expected. It's not like he's breaking any official rules, but a lot of informal rules about politeness, etiquette, etc. he kind of ignores. He's a character very much stuck in his own head. And then there's Ayumi, who is a friend of Aomame's. After they met up at a bar, she's a policewoman and she does not last long. Later on in the story, someone strangles her to death. Not Aomame. Aomame finds out after the fact. Obviously, I'm going to be summarizing this story and leaving a lot of detail out because it's 900 freaking pages. But I did my best to condense the most important plot points to remember. The story begins with Aomame on this mission. She's going to quote unquote an appointment for, you know, killing someone. She's in a taxi, they're stuck in traffic. She's gonna be late for this appointment. And as she's in the taxi worrying about this, she tries to distract herself by letting 
the music just sweep over her. She's never heard this piece before, but somehow as she listens to it, she knows everything about it. Everything comes to her. The year it was made, 1926, the place it was made. So she's going through in her head all the historical events. There's a lot of history there. The super, super, super condensed version is in 1926, Czechoslovakia was in an interesting position. The World War, the first one, was over. The Habsburg dynasty was over. It was like a time for celebration right before Hitler rose in power and Europe felt like democracy was just a failed experiment in some ways. That was also a major year for Japan. The emperor died, the era changed to one that to them symbolized their decline of democracy as well. And so while she is thinking about all of this, the taxi driver says, well, if you're in such a hurry, there is one way you can probably get there faster. See that secret staircase over there? You can use that emergency fire escape staircase. Obviously, this is the kind of appointment she cannot miss. So she's hesitant, but decides, I gotta go for it. She really just tries to keep her face a blank slate even more than usual, as she's very aware of all the eyes on her. She's worried about getting in trouble, but at this point, what matters most is getting to this appointment. So she leaves the taxi to go down the emergency stairs, and the taxi driver gives her some very weird parting words, where he says, remember not everything is as it seems, and quote, don't let appearances fool you. There's always only one reality. She asks him to elaborate, and all he says is, well, you're about to do something out of the ordinary. Basically to say, I'd be careful if I were you. How you're about to warp the space-time continuum is kind of the, the quiet part of that statement. So she doesn't have time too much to ponder what he's talking about. But that changed everything. She went down that staircase and entered this parallel world. There are a lot of little changes in this parallel world. The cops have different uniforms now. Plus now they don't carry revolvers, they carry automatic handguns. The papers are full of news stories she has no memory of. One of those stories is about an extremist group who had a standoff with the cops. Eventually we see that was caused by this sub-faction of Saki Gakke who splintered out from the main group. Time does not function at the same speed it did in the normal world. It seems to have just an unfamiliar flow to it. And the biggest difference is the world has two moons. Biggest symbolically. So Aoma Meg gets to the hotel, disguises as a hotel staff member, and commits the assassination she was assigned to commit. She uses an ice pick so as not to leave any prints or any mark that she was there. Meanwhile, then we have the plot with Tengo happening, and he's reading the manuscript. He gets this girl's permission to rewrite it as much as he wants, and he does so many edits to it. But first, he wants to get to know who he's going to ghostwrite for, whether she realizes he's actually helping her out that much or not. And so, he takes up her invite to meet her guardian, who she calls Sensei. She lives with Sensei because her parents live in that cult. And so they had to cut off contact with her, and she hasn't heard from them in seven years. So Tango heavily revises this story that he has started to suspect is true and about her parents, and the story is published. Air Chrysalis is a massive success. So his plan is basically working. This girl is getting these accolades, and he can get them for quote-unquote discovering her. But 
One group of people who are ticked off about this book, those cult members, who think she told our story. After Aomama has done her mission, she goes back to report to her boss, the Dowager, and gets introduced to a ten-year-old girl who joined her parents in this Sakigake affiliation. She lives in this safe house under the Dowager's watch to escape the cult, but one day she disappears and is never seen again. The Dowager assigns Aomame a new task now, kill the cult leader. Long, long, long story short, she does eventually kill the cult leader and then she's on the run. She knows the cult members are going to be after her and she goes into hiding. Meanwhile, Sakigate officials have hired that private investigator Ushikawa to spy on Tango and figure out more about his writing process for Air Chrysalis. Those same people also then task him with finding Aomame to avenge their leader's death. Ushikawa rents a room in Tango's apartment building, sets up a camera, gets ready to find them. He eventually realizes both of his targets are in this apartment building. Quite a bit of time goes by where Tango and Aomame are hiding out in the same building for the same reason. Their fates are, just like I said before, intertwined. They're on the run from the same common enemy in the same location. He's watching them. They're trying to hide from him. Tamaru, the Dowager's bodyguard, eventually comes and sneaks into Ushikawa's room, kills him deciding that he knows too much, and calls the Sakigate people to say, come collect his body. After 20 years, our two main protagonists feel free to reunite now that the private investigator who was on their tail has died. So now the two feel like they can stay together as they share this common mission, escaping their common enemy. The two eventually, again, very long story short, they make it back to the real world, or so they think, but it seems to have been permanently changed. This world is just so different from the one the story started with in very subtle ways. But one way it's back to normal is it has one single moon in the sky. And the two of them hold hands like they did on that fateful day 20 years ago to just stare up at the sky and that ends the book. There are a couple big themes and takeaways to sit with. One of them is the power of a single moment in your life to change your destiny. Do coincidences even exist? Is everything just preordained that we will go through? Their fate drove their actions. Is everything a result of fate? Those are the questions provoked by this story. In a really interesting conversation with her friend Ayumi, Aumame said, quote, We think we're choosing things for ourselves, but in fact, we may not be choosing anything. It could be that everything's decided in advance, and we pretend we're making choices. Free will may be an illusion, unquote. There are other moments in the story as well where it feels like they don't know what's happening or why, but they feel compelled to go along with it. For example, there is this big, pivotal plot point during a thunderstorm, and Aomame and the Dowager, they have this chronic, seemingly chronic anger at the justice system for failing women, and that is why they have the roles that they do. But their anger seems to really evaporate when the rain does. And after that thunderstorm, their sense of the end justifying the means feels different. So in addition to raising questions about revenge, true justice, and fate, this story also really brings into question social norms 
And what happens when those norms are altered or discarded? What does that do? When you do something, as the taxi driver emphasized in his sentence, out of the ordinary, how much do you change the real world while you're in the parallel world, so to speak? And ultimately, it's about how when your fate is tied up in someone else's, your life no longer feels as much like it revolves around yourself. It shapes your perception of all sorts of things. When you see the consequences of your actions as affecting other people, and when you realize your interconnectedness with people and things in the world, that causes you to stop and reassess your role in whatever happens, because other people's fates are linked up in yours. Lastly, this story talks about a really interesting concept, which is selective memory, what we choose to remember and what we forget. Ayumi says, quote, that's what the world is after all, an endless battle of contrasting memories, unquote. The next story we're going to talk about relates to that and many more things we will talk more about later, Kafka on the Shore. This is by the same author, and he recommends reading it more than once. It's probably like The Alchemist in that way, where the first time you read it, it's for the plot, get to know the characters, etc. And the second time you read it, you don't read it for what's happening so much as the symbolic layer of what's happening. Really immerse yourself in the more metaphorical layer of the story. Kafka on the Shore is about this kid Kafka Tamura. He actually renames himself after Franz Kafka once he runs away. We'll talk more about Franz later. He lived with his dad, a famous sculptor, barely talked to him. They really have animosity towards each other live very separate lives despite living in the same house, they don't communicate. Kafka plans to run away on his 15th birthday, and he doesn't mind. He had just his dad with him. He's not betraying anyone else, he feels like. He has no memories of his mom and sister, who ran away from home. They left the house when he was just four years old. He's a good student, and he pays attention in class. He goes to this wealthy private school, but money doesn't make happiness, and he is a mega sad loner. He really fears letting people in and forming relationships. He does not want to feel vulnerable. He wants to feel totally independent, which is why he runs away. Yet ironically, when he runs away, he's with someone in his head. In his subconscious, he forms kind of, I guess, an imaginary friend of sorts named Crow. And actually, Kafka means Crow in Czech, which is interesting considering the Czechoslovakia message in the other story. Crow represents part of Kafka's psyche and is his companion and advice giver. This story goes back and forth between being about the adventures of Kafka as he tries to start a new life. He goes to this new mountain town where the rules of time do not apply as they used to. He spends his days reading in the private library and just kind of hiding out from the world. The other plot going on here is about this wounded war veteran, Nakata. Nakata had a past traumatic incident where people he was with collapsed as well, but he was the only one in a coma for weeks. After collapsing, he walked out of the sea not remembering what happened to him, and he also forgot how to read and write. So he doesn't know what to do with his life, feels very down on himself, and kind of a disassociated person now, forever changed by the war and that incident when he was playing in the woods. He refers to himself in the third person, and he's considered a character with 
what the author describes as an atypical shadow. Read into that what you will. Once he meets Kafka, he's very drawn to him and doesn't know why. He also doesn't know why he feels this urge to find the entrance stone, but he does. So he's on the hunt for it. The entrance stone, once you find it, is supposed to reconnect the spiritual and quote-unquote real worlds. The private library Kafka has been spending his days in is co-owned by Oshima and Miseki. Miseki is also labeled a character with an atypical shadow, and Kafka could play either her son or is the ghost of her lover. His role could be either, and they don't clarify. Miseki at one point reverts back to her 15-year-old self, continuing this author's habit of invoking a warping of the passage of time and other supernatural elements into his stories. She has a mysterious background because Miseki also ran away when she was 15. And then she found herself trapped in a parallel universe. She came out the other side, but she was irreversibly changed. Sound familiar? And she left with part of her soul left behind in that original world, which is why she's considered to have an atypical shadow. She's not fully the same person anymore. And because she's kind of a shell of who she was before, described as having an atypical shadow, one can surmise that Nakata also went through some sort of similar experience. Misaki also used to be a singer, and actually she's the one who sings the song Kafka on the Shore, which Kafka first hears when he gets a record from that library. The much more likable of the two library owners is Oshima. He's also a cabin owner, he's a 21-year-old, and he bonds like Kafka is his little brother. There's some more minor characters to note too. Hoshino is the truck driver who becomes friends with Nakata and feels drawn to him because he looks just like his grandpa. I hope you're noticing all the times these people look like they knew each other in a past life. There's Johnny Walker, who is the surreal cat killer around town. He's hoping to use the cat's souls to make a flute out of them. I don't know what to say about that. Some of the cats in this story that Nakata communicates with, I forgot to mention that. These cats are viewed as abstract, meaning that they're not real. They're in someone's head, much like Crow is. The last character I want to talk about is similarly described as not really physically present, but an abstract visualization. Colonel Sanders. Yes, modeled after the KFC Colonel Sanders. This Colonel Sanders, though, looks like a hustler, and he is. He acts like a big hustler. He's there to help find the entrance stone. He's a shapeshifter. He's got magic powers. He views himself as a supervisor, maybe for a selfish reason. Maybe he wants to get back to his more human, non-supernatural self. A more succinct way of putting the plot is that it centers around Kafka running away from home, trying to avoid this prophecy coming true. This borrows heavily from the Oedipus myth, so I don't want to get too much into the super cringy Oedipus story, but that's basically what's happening. That's the prophecy. So to avoid that, he runs away. He takes a few items with him when he leaves, and as he does, he finds this picture of his mom and sister and has no memory of hanging out with them at the beach, but that's what the picture shows. It's really interesting, given the mythology at play here, that Kafka says, quote, My sister's looking off to the side, so half her face is in the shadow, and her smile is nearly cut in half. 
It's like one of those Greek tragedy masks in a textbook that's half one idea and half the opposite. Light and dark, hope and despair, laughter and sadness, trust and loneliness. Kafka didn't do this on a whim. He's actually been preparing for two years to run away, even working out a lot, practicing judo. He wants to bulk up and look older so that if he looks like he's 17 or 18, people will ask less questions than if they see a 15-year-old alone. He gets on this night bus and it officially becomes his birthday. Crow wishes him a happy birthday, but he doesn't seem to like Crow being there. He says, quote, the omen is still with me though, like a shadow. I check to make sure the wall around me is still in place, unquote. I think he was meaning the literal wall of this night bus, which is kind of like a train with compartments, but I also think he meant it symbolically. So he spends his days reading in the public library until things escalate very quickly when he becomes a murder suspect. And at first, actually, the victim and the perpetrator are unknown. Then it becomes clear that he, without knowing it, had somehow someday killed his dad. The prophecy was carried out without him being consciously aware that it happened. He feels disgusted with himself. He goes to this presumably healing forest, which works wonders for him. Again, this is quite an abridged version of what happens. Nakaya eventually kills that cat murderer, Johnny Walker, to stop him from turning the cat's souls into an instrument. Kafka gets the Kafka on the shore record at the library. And Nakata's story ends where he decides to understand what his strengths are, and maybe his strengths involve finding cool places to travel navigation. So he learns basically to have confidence despite his illiteracy. So he can't read a map, but he's going to see if he can go on his first ever road trip. So he starts this big symbolic venture out into the world who knows where despite his worries. Some big overall themes here. Different parts of your psyche, your subconscious, forming these bonds even when you try to shut out the world. Then you will form imaginary relationships, but humans need relationships. Then there's music as this powerful tool for bonding and telling stories. After all, he hears Kafka on the shore, and then we find out about this whole backstory of that song being created by Miseki, who, who would have thought, used to be a singer. Obviously, a big theme here, too, is Oedipus, but the author himself has stressed that that is not meant to be the main story here. It's not supposed to just be this literal take on the myth. It's supposed to be different. The authors actually said, quote, Myths are the prototype for all stories. When we write a story on our own, it can't help but link up with all sorts of myths. Myths are like a reservoir containing every story there is, unquote. There's a really, really interesting quote that references Greek tragedies, not the one from before. This is a different one. Quote, listen, Kafka, what you're experiencing now is the motif of many Greek tragedies. Man doesn't choose fate. Fate chooses man. That's the basic worldview of Greek drama. And the sense of tragedy comes not from the protagonist's weak points, but his good qualities. People are drawn deeper into tragedy, not by their defects but by their virtues. Sophocles' Oedipus Rex being a great example. Oedipus is drawn into tragedy, not because of laziness or stupidity, but because of his courage and honesty. So an inevitable irony results. But we accept irony through a device called metaphor. And through that we grow and become deeper 
human beings. There is a lot there, so let's break it apart. This story talks about how in Greek tragedies, things are not what they seem. Things are kind of flipped upside down, so what is viewed as wrong is right, what's right is wrong, and people seem to be rewarded for their deviant thoughts and punished for their good qualities. So you could say then it's like a sin to have good qualities, and likewise you could say it's a gift to have bad qualities. So with everything topsy-turvy, it's inevitable that irony exists. And in a world full of irony, we need metaphors to help us make sense of the world and fully further understand at a deep level what we're doing and why. This is a philosophical argument I'm actually going to address in a different episode coming up. That's all tease for that, but the basic premise of this argument is irony cannot simplify. It can only complicate. But it is needed as a measure, as a tool to reconcile contradictory feelings and thoughts in people's heads, to make sense of what seems nonsensical. Trying to find a method to madness is what understanding metaphor is all about. So this story is basically not an endorsement of Oedipus. It's really using a story that is that attention-grabbing and jarring to force you to think about its main message, to get your attention. And the main message I think this author has is about not even anything to do with Oedipus, but about storytelling in general, myths, metaphors, symbolism. These fictional world elements are very much a part of our real world as well. And understanding those connections is key to understanding how so many things in the world are interconnected, so many fates are intertwined, good or bad, it all blends together. Basically, he's writing about the shades of gray. Life is anything but black and white. Taken together, there are a lot of parallels to make for 1Q84 and Kafka on the Shore. And they subsequently have a lot in common with BTS's broad messages and their music video universe. First of all, the emphasis on symbols, metaphors, similes, how we try to use language to understand each other's feelings and experiences, how we try to find the right words and the limitations of language to do that. It's really just one level of describing incredibly multi-level emotions and experiences. But metaphors are trying to bridge those gaps between levels. That's super, super clear in 1Q84, because frankly, one of the reasons why the writing style in it I don't care for is because it uses metaphors and similes a lot in every single chapter to compare everything. And in Kafka on the Shore, there are quotes like, everything in life is a metaphor, Metaphors help eliminate what separates you and me, and this big one, symbolism and meaning, are two separate things. I think she found the right words by bypassing procedures like meaning and logic. She captured words in a dream, like delicately catching hold of a butterfly's wings as it flutters around, unquote. Think about that. Symbolism and meaning are not the same thing. And meaning refers to a logic-based thought process, which is described here as like a procedural motion. And you don't have to go through the procedural motions. Think outside the box. Discard that. Jump right into the world of symbols and dreams. One more really interesting quote about this from Kafka on the Shore. Beyond the edge of the world, there's a space where emptiness and substance 
neatly overlap, where past and future form a continuous, endless loop. And, hovering about, there are signs no one has ever read, chords no one has ever heard. The full limitlessness of the world can be understood when you give up a desire to feel like you know everything. When you just throw your hands up to and accept the fact that language is just one level of understanding the world, then the limitations of language become clear, as does the limitlessness of the actual world and its many levels. Which is kind of part of what Nakata's story is all about. He can't read or write, but that doesn't mean he's dumb. He has his own unique skill set that you come to know throughout the book. You see his strengths as a person, very different from what you would think, but he defies conventions. And defying conventions is what understanding irony, symbolism, metaphors, etc. are meant to help with. There's a really interesting quote from Murakami himself, not in the book, but just about his books in an interview. He said, quote, I don't know a whole lot about symbolism. There seems to me to be a potential danger in symbolism. I feel more comfortable with metaphors and similes. I don't really know what the lyrics of the song mean or whether they even have any meaning in the first place. It might be much easier to understand if someone set the lyrics to music and sang it." Unquote. That was extra interesting to me because it seems to contradict his heavy reliance on symbols in his writing. Yet at the same time, he's basically admitting he loves using metaphors. Those are his go-tos to feel like he's accurately expressing situations as he visualizes them. The world as he sees it becomes easier for him to articulate with metaphors and similes. So he really makes that seem totally different than talking in terms of symbolism. But then he suggests maybe symbols would come easier to him to understand if set to music. So wrapped up all in that one quote sums up his writing style really and his main messages about the power of music, the power of symbols, and the shortcomings of both, and how they balance each other out maybe with their shortcomings. The next major theme in BTS's work as well as both of the stories we just talked about, blurring the lines between what is real and what is not. As I've referenced often on this show, Irving Goffman, the sociologist, talked about life as theater, and I just really find his way of looking at life so fascinating, how people go through life. We just put on costumes to enter the public sphere. We take off our masks and our costumes when we get home in our private spheres. The objects we use to represent us could be considered our props. There's so much acting, so much scripted dialogue humans go through to go through the norms and the motions. When you're in a new environment where there's no longer a script for you to follow, you don't know what costume to wear, what props to use, it's jolting. It's just an interesting sociological way to describe why we fear change so much and why we always cling to a world that may be gone, but we refuse to admit that. And this refusal to accept change furthers the divide in people's minds between worlds when they don't realize maybe those lines were always a bit blurred between what are you dreaming for and aspiring towards versus what is the real deal. So these thoughts about fate how much we truly control our destinies and our futures are questions grappled with by all of this material. It's really interesting that when Aomame is going down the emergency staircase, 
after she leaves the taxi. The orchestral work that was playing her exit, the soundtrack to her exit basically, is ending. So applause follow her as she leaves the quote-unquote scene in this play. She also says, quote, You couldn't begin to imagine who I am, where I'm going, or what I'm about to do. All of you are trapped here. You can't go anywhere, forward or back. She's referring to the people stuck in traffic, staring at her. But I'm not like you. I have work to do. I have a mission to accomplish. And so, with your permission, I shall move ahead. Unquote. The most interesting part of that to me is the with your permission side note. Because she sounds so sure of herself, like, I'm going to defy the script, I'm going to go off script and ad-lib my way through life. Is that okay? And then she suddenly seems a little more timid about it. Like, is she really ready to do that? But she does move ahead on this uncharted path. Here's some food for thought from Kafka's story. Quote, Perhaps most people in the world aren't trying to be free Kafka. They just think they are. It's all an illusion. If they really were set free, most people would be in a real pickle. You'd better remember that. People actually prefer not to be free. Unquote. More from Kafka. Quote, In everybody's life, there's a point of no return. And in very few cases, a point where you can't go forward anymore. And when we reach that point, all we can do is quietly accept the fact. That's how we survive. Unquote. This what can you do? Throw your hands up. The prophecy is going to come true. Whether you try to control your destiny or not, the script is pre-written. That mindset seems to be at play in the BTS part of their story where they have all of Namjoon's monologues. This was leading up to the Blood, Sweat, and Tears era, the prequel to Blood, Sweat, and Tears. When Namjoon talks about shaking hands with the devil, and he actually uses the word scene, his scene consisted of him having shaken hands with the devil. So he feels like his fate is sealed. But then later on, you have him in the San Persona questioning that. Could he break out from that persona and change masks? Or get rid of a mask he's wearing entirely? Along with that, third concept in all of this is a questioning not just of who you are, but who things you thought were stable actually are. That social norms as taken for granted as the concept of time can be messed with. Think about daylight savings time, right? We just, we can just collectively decide to change how we approach time, to change our clocks. Yeah, we can. And actually, this is a total aside, but there are different lobbying forces that have caused daylight savings time to not be banned in the USA. Some laws have been brought up over time to stop doing this silly thing, but over time, different lobbying groups have led a charge against banning daylight savings. It's good for their business, like the candy companies made sure they, they fought for October to still have light outside enough for kids to go trick-or-treating, things like that. So it's based on business interests. But anyway, the point is, daylight savings time is a great example of how time actually is not so concrete. We can change it. Time is just an agreed-upon schedule, an agreed-upon approach to scheduling time for our scenes in this script for the movie called Life. Time is truly what we make of it. And that is something Murakami brings up constantly in his work. And actually, in Kafka's story, he uses the phrase for the time being a lot in that book, which I just thought was very intentional. Annoying, 
but intentional. The author also likes to describe time as this living thing, like it constricts and expands like a human organ. The clock hands in Kafka are described as, quote, cold and distant. They're pretending to be non-committal, but I know they're not on my side, unquote. I just thought that was a funny way to reference hands on a clock. And this quote is just absolutely priceless. Quote, the earth, time, concepts, love, life, faith, justice, evil, they're all fluid and in transition. They don't stay in one form or in one place forever. The whole universe is like some big FedEx box, unquote. The whole universe is like a big FedEx box, never staying in one place. How this applies to BTS is, of course, based on all the time travel elements in their story, flashbacks, scenes that get played in reverse at points. They have a lot of focus on finding those literal snapshots in time. Cameras, Polaroids are a big part of the story, and every norm in the BTS music video universe gets turned upside down, sometimes literally. The words save me flipped upside down look like they say I'm fine and vice versa. The members themselves have those atypical shadows. They are shadows of one another. There are symbols like that stick, that popsicle stick of sorts, that charm with the black marker or writing on it that are shared among characters. And there are nods in Shadow and Ego back to their Oh Are You Late 2 era. Time is just viewed as this warped thing where the past keeps coming into the future and sometimes vice versa because of the time travel element here. But as scary as this all might sound, one thing people can take comfort in is that if this society is so all over the place and nothing is for certain, you can at least hold on to the reassurance of one fact. As they say in The Alchemist, all things are one. Fate and how we live shows that we are a very connected humanity in unexpected ways. In a description in 1Q84, when the author writes about Aomame's love of history, the author describes her love of history as being about, quote, even if she did not learn them by rote memorization, once she grasped the relationship of an event to its time into the events preceding and following it, the date would come to her automatically. Unquote. She made sense of history better once she was able to associate an event with a person, with a place, with a moment in time, showing how time is a template to understand this crazy world. Another template to understand the world is through each other. In Kafka, quote, well think of what I'm doing to you right now. For me, I'm the self and you're the object. For you, of course, it's the exact opposite. You're the self to you, and I'm the object. And by exchanging self and object, we can project ourselves onto one another and gain self-consciousness, unquote. Who we become is very much influenced by who surrounds us. The next big takeaway, tying all of these sources together, questioning authority, opting for curiosity and critical thinking over blind obedience and just instant agreement with what you hear. And that's what actually the book Demian that we talked about in BT Study Guide 1 is all about, is questioning everything and just staying very curious and ready for more information. Because remember, these topics that these books discuss revolve around this 
sense that reality is not so black and white, and a lot of things we assume are just the way things are, maybe they're worth questioning. Maybe they're not as concrete as we thought those answers were. So living in ambiguity requires this questioning. That is noted in 1Q84 when the taxi driver makes several comments critical of the government and basically just says, I'm not going to check out the traffic alerts via the radio because I don't trust it. And that half the time, they're not accurate. He also reassures her that no one is going to catch her escaping via the emergency staircase she's not allowed to go in because he thinks nobody does any real work or enforcement of certain public safety guidelines. Kafka gives several speeches talking about his desire to not live an easy life, but have the strength to endure a hard one, and talks about how he wants to be able to absorb knowledge and power to do so. And then there's BTS's work. Not just the Damien connection, but they also have this theme as a core of their early eras. Dope has lyrics like, wake up the sleeping youth, and the media and adults say we have no willpower and look at us as if we're investments. Basically just pointing out how younger generations are underestimated. Spinebreaker is a song of theirs where they plea for people to not act on impulse, but to stop and reflect on why they feel like succumbing to that peer pressure. So they can eventually decide, you know what, I don't need this. Their song No in the music video critique making students these machines putting everyone in the same box, standardized testing that puts students in the same box. They're critical of that in that song. I could go on and on. Further adding onto this concept is the author's focus on the importance of imagination and dreaming to try to control your own destiny. And that's actually what BTS always ponders in their story is if they could turn back the clock, what would they do differently? How can they proceed going forward? manifest their dreams in a way they prefer. This all goes back to what Murakami has said about dreams. He views dreams as the first step towards goals, the first step towards concrete change for a better world. Dreams are underrated and very, very powerful. The belief in something is so much more profound and impactful than people realize. There are a lot of great quotes about this in Kafka that I want to run through. Our responsibility begins with our imagination. Narrow minds devoid of imagination. Those are the things that really frighten me. You're afraid of imagination and even more afraid of dreams. Afraid of the responsibility that begins in dreams. What disgusts me even more are people who have no imagination. My grandpa said, this is a really good one, Asking a question is embarrassing for a moment, but not asking is embarrassing for a lifetime. Lastly, narrow minds devoid of imagination, intolerance, theories cut off from reality, empty terminology, usurped ideals, inflexible systems. Those are the things that really frighten me. What I absolutely fear and loathe. Of course, it's important to know what's right and what's wrong. Individual errors in judgment can usually be corrected. As long as you have the courage to admit mistakes, things can be turned around but intolerant, narrow minds with no imagination are like parasites that transform the host, change form, and continue to thrive. They're a lost cause, and I don't want anyone like that coming in here." Unquote. All these stories connect curiosity and imagination with being able to control your future and your destiny. And if your mind is 
not expanded enough to stay creative and imaginative, then of course you're just going to follow this perceived prophecy and your perceived fate. Rather than imagine, rather than daring to dream of a totally different future. One that abandons the old norms you used to follow and the old ideals you used to hold. Another connection, the limitations of language, how that really only defines part of our vast experiences. A lot cannot be captured fully by words alone. Understanding life through shades of gray, therefore, is critical, which is why BTS's, the visual component of their stories is so powerful, the music videos and short films. And of course, talking about Shades of Grey ties back to BTS's reference to Abraxas, which refers to that yin and yang effect, needing the black to understand the white, the good to understand the bad, and how understanding middle grounds is most important. Another major, major theme, fearing opening up. Fearing, letting your, again, the life is theater reference being invoked here, blurring the lines between your private self and your public self, showing who you truly, truly are to the world, acting like no one is watching. That fear is described a lot in these stories. And opening up is what is essential for these characters to realize how much their fates are tied up in others, so might as well just be honest with other people, because your fates are interconnected. Kafka talks about this a lot. So I'm going to read some of his quotes together, although they are separate quotes. I've built a wall around me, never letting anybody inside and trying not to venture outside myself. Who could like somebody like that? They all keep an eye on me from a distance. I can't remember the last time I laughed or even showed a hint of a smile to other people, even to myself. I'm not trying to imply I can keep up this silent, isolated facade all the time. Sometimes the walls I've erected around me come crumbling down. It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes, before I even realize what's going on, there I am, naked and defenseless, and totally confused. At times like that, I always feel an omen calling out to me, like a dark, omnipresent pool of water. Do you know what it means to be completely empty? Being empty is like a vacant house. An unlocked, vacant house. Anybody can come in anytime they want. That's what scares me the most. Things outside you are projections of what's inside you. And what's inside you is a projection of what's outside. So when you step into the labyrinth outside you, at the same time, you're stepping into the labyrinth inside. So all in all, Kafka is so scared of revealing who he truly is Yet he gets on some level that no matter how much he fears it, it's going to happen. It's inevitable that who he is on the inside will merge with the outside world. People will see him for truly who he is. The masks will come off. And so you got to learn to live with yourself. And that is something BTS's characters come to grips with as well. So to sum up all of these big themes, IQ84, Kafka on the Shore, and BTS's music video universe discuss. They deal with the limitations of language to understand our world and the desire to realize fully how much our fates are tied up in one another's, how interconnected the world truly is, and how much we need to lean on others. We need those relationships. We can't live in isolation. And so the need to share experiences with others causes all these characters to go on these journeys, these internal journeys to figure out how to be 
more vulnerable and more okay with that. In the meantime, while discovering how we can be comfortable showing truly who we are to the world. In the meantime, we try to connect with people through symbols, metaphors, similes, words. We try to use language as the best we can to get people to relate to us until we can finally come to a true full realization of how they understood us all along and all these humans at their core understood because like I said before, all things are one. So it's about figuring out at the core of humanity what it's all about when you define yourself outside of concepts that you thought were concrete. The concepts of space and time and other abstract concepts. You learn to let go what those are because the definitions change and being okay with that will allow you to change as a person as well. These stories also deal with questioning authority and what true justice is, fate and coincidence if it even exists, the importance of imagination as a starting point to make the world a better place, growing comfortable living in shades of gray and understanding life is not black and white, opening up to others, and lastly, the power of music to ground you in the present moment. This is something that Murakami really loves. He loves to incorporate music into his stories. He actually has owned over 6,000 records in his life. He is such a music fan. And you can see why, because his characters find ways to understand the world around them through music. And that's something I go on about endlessly on this show. But how cool it is that music is this universal language. And you don't need to speak Korean to listen to a K-pop song, for example, and feel the same feelings the artists are conveying. Kafka tries to ground himself in the present moment often. He talks about life is all about trying to embrace the pain, embrace that stormy moment rather than run from it. So he's focused on just reading, immersing himself in literary worlds, and then musical worlds as he gets the Kafka on the Shore record from the library. He also has this great quote about remembering to slow down and enjoy this ride called life. Quote, you can't look too far ahead. Do that and you'll lose sight of what you're doing and stumble. I'm not saying you should focus solely on the details right in front of you. You've got to look ahead a bit or else you'll bump into something. You've got to conform to the proper order and at the same time keep an eye out for what's ahead. That's critical no matter what you're doing. Unquote. So he acknowledges that you can't live 100% in the present because you got to prepare for the future and you've got to try to learn from the past, but you can consciously shift your focus to focusing more in the present moment and not totally forgetting it. There's that sense of trying to ground yourself in the moment, especially through music in BTS's work. In particular, I'm thinking of Suga's character who his first love is described as his piano. And then there's Jin's monologue about taking in this very moment and remembering that everything has led up for a reason to this very moment. He talks about fate and reflecting on the way things are right now. He also talks about what Kafka said is learning how to handle the storms in life and how learning to love yourself is a way to feel stronger in weathering those storms and your ability to do that. Some quotes from Jin's monologues. Yesterday's many encounters and separations existed for this moment. Every crossroad and alley that I walked through were all meant to lead me to this very place. I realize life's immense beauty. Just the fact that you are in it makes all the difference. Though many seasons pass, there are places that cannot be reached. Yet another storm to be faced and to be weathered head on. Loving without fear, 
hesitating and parting, merely living as the person I am. As I went on about at length in BT Study Guide 4, BTS has the song called Magic Shop, which was inspired by the book Into the Magic Shop, which is all about using a magic shop metaphor to cope with anxiety, and that has been very helpful to me and other BTS fans, where they say, hey, when you're overwhelmed, go to the mental magic shop you create in your head, and you'll see seven boys smiling there waiting for you to comfort you. So they give us this visualization to go with the song Magic Shop. And that made me think about this quote from Kafka, quote, lost opportunities, lost possibilities, feelings we can never get back. That's part of what it means to be alive. But inside our heads, at least that's where I imagine it, there's a little room where we store those memories. We have to keep on making new reference cards. We have to dust off things every once in a while, let in fresh air, change the water in the flower vases. In other words, you'll live forever in your own private library." Unquote. I love that metaphor of your own personal little library in your head, magic shop, whatever little description you want to describe how once you can come to terms with who you are, you can always have a go-to escape hatch of sorts just in your head. It's mobile, it goes wherever you go, whenever you need a breather. To reflect on where you are grounded in this moment and where you want to go, there is a resource to go to, and it's inside you. What could be more empowering and thought-provoking than that? Before I let you go for today, I want to share a few more Kafka quotes because I just think they are really, really interesting. And that's it. I just find them very interesting. Listen up. There's no war that will end all wars. War breeds war. Lapping up the bloodshed by violence, feeding on wounded flesh. War is a perfect, self-contained being. Then there's this one. A certain type of perfection can only be realized through a limitless accumulation of the imperfect. This one I love about not trying to get too ahead of yourself. Does G get angry because it follows F in the alphabet? Does page 68 in a book start a revolution because it follows 67? I just thought that was a great way to put it when you're trying to compare yourself to others. Your time will come. Lastly, it's like Tolstoy said, happiness is an allegory, unhappiness a story. Think about that. Unhappiness is a story. It's concrete. It's understandable. It is specific and universally relatable. Happiness is an allegory, meaning it is not something substantial and concrete. It is of the abstract world. It is not as clearly defined. Maybe actually it's more relatable when the specifics are not there. Happiness is an allegory unhappiness a story. That really could explain why a lot of media is popular, why people like watching drama, why people can't look away from certain dark intense scenes. Happiness is just an allegory compared to unhappiness. That is all I will leave you with today. I will actually have a special bonus episode coming with more about Kafka, Franz Kafka, and BTS connections. But those are just some ideas and broad takeaways I have from all these stories for you to ponder. Hope you enjoyed this book review slash connection to BTS's work. Again, technically, this is the last episode of BT Study Guides, but I have a few bonus episodes on the way. So stay tuned for more in this series. Thank you all so much for listening, as always. If you liked this episode, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, and I'll talk to you all again very, very soon.